Michael, I'm one of the elders here at One Hope Church. Glad that you've come to worship with us this morning, a little bit dreary outside. We'd originally planned to have baptism this morning, but with all the water that's going down the river, it's a little unsafe, and uh, so we decided to put it off to next week. Um, But we wanted to have baptism this week, one, because um, some people have made professions for faith and haven't been baptized yet, and so we want to do that as soon as possible. We're excited about that, and we're going to celebrate that next week when we're able to do that. Um, but the other thing is that we come to this point in our, as we're going through Luke where Jesus is baptized. And for, for those of us who are believers and understand what uh, believer's baptism is, that may seem a little bit odd. It's like, well, Jesus, that doesn't, why was he baptized? So we're going to look at that a little bit. So we're in Luke chapter 3, and we're going to pick up at verse 21 where we left off uh, last week. So Luke chapter 3 starting in verse 21. And I'm going to read all the way through the end of the chapter, so if you want to go ahead and start praying for me that I'll pronounce some of the names in the genealogy correctly, I would appreciate that. So um, let's start at Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while He was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about thirty years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Malchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Malchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Emadon, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Elizer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Neshon, the son of Amenadad, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Haber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Orphazad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Oh, just, we're just going for a percentage on that one. So, uh, um, so we see here that Luke takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam. 
the first man. And that's going to be important. But before we get to that, let's talk about the baptism of Jesus and just where this falls in in Luke's narrative. Now Luke is, in, we just finished up and we talked a little bit about John the Baptist. And Luke's narrative steps back just a little bit to show this overlap of the ministry of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And it's kind of there to offer a delineation between John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry that was just beginning. But then we come back to the question that I had at the beginning was, why was Jesus baptized? Well, there, first, we want to understand what baptism is and what it means. Uh, baptism, the word, means immersion. And it was used of when they would take a fabric and dip it in dye to change its color. So it would go in looking one way and come out looking like something different. That's what the word means, immersion. And that's why when we practice baptism, we practice it by immersion because that's really what the word means and is most uh, symbolic of what, we have, uh, what we're trying to represent. Now, there are different types of baptisms that we see in the Bible. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see various cleansing with water for different things. It could be for healing, for purification, um, or when someone entered the priesthood, they would have this time of baptism. And then John came around, and his baptism is a baptism of repentance, preparing people for the ministry of Jesus that was to come. Because he was saying, you know, we talked last week about he was making the path straight and bringing the ravines up and lowering the hills to make it easier for the work of Jesus to come to rest in people's hearts. So this was a baptism of repentance. But Jesus had no sin to repent of. So why was he being baptized? Well, then we have the baptism that we're familiar with today, which is believer's baptism. That once a person becomes a believer, they go through baptism. And you read in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So the baptism for a believer, which happens after they accept Christ as a believer, is a symbolic act that's representative of what's already happened in their life. It's not the baptism that saves you. It's the, it's the uh, following Jesus as your Savior and accepting that. It's, but the baptism is representative of that. It's symbolic of that. So all, none of these things really apply, or the repentance doesn't apply to Jesus. And obviously, it wasn't a believer's baptism because, you know, you can't believe in yourself in that same way. So he had, and he had nothing that needed to be forgiven. So why was he baptized? Well, there's a few different thoughts about this. And I think all of them can apply in, to a certain degree. One, he was beginning his public ministry. We don't know a whole lot about what was going on in the daily life of Jesus up to this point. We have a few episodes where we see his birth, we see some things in his childhood, but for the most part, if he's up to the age of 30, there's a pretty good span there that we know very little about. But here he's entering his public ministry. We see in the Gospels all the different things that he did were recorded here. So this is really the beginning of his ministry. And in a way, he's entering the priesthood. We see in Hebrews chapter 5 and in chapter 7 that Jesus is our high priest. And he's of the order of Melchizedek, which is a reference back to Genesis 14, which is uh, kind of a side road we don't quite have time for today. But Jesus is our high priest. We have no need for another priest because Jesus is our high priest. So in a way, he's entering his ministry. And he's also, through this act, showing approval for the ministry of John. 
And in a way, he's showing the conclusion of the ministry of John. This is kind of a handoff of the ministry of John to the ministry of Jesus. John says, and it's recorded in John chapter 3, he says, He, referring to Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And I think also through this moment, just, you know, on top of his whole incarnation of becoming a man, Jesus is identifying with mankind that he's going to take on our sin, and he's also modeling obedience for his followers. Now, if you look at Matthew's gospel, he spends more time talking about the baptism than Luke does. But Luke's emphasis is what happens next. And so he's really just saying, when Jesus was baptized, this happened. So it's really kind of a, just giving you a frame of reference of when this happened. And what Luke points to in this next verse, it says, And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. So we see this incredible, miraculous event happening at the time that Jesus was baptized. He's entering his messianic ministry with the blessing and the approval of the Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see here the presence of the Trinity. You never see the word Trinity in the Bible, but here we see it represented uh, perfectly that you have God the Father speaking this blessing over his Son, the Son of God, and then you have the Holy Spirit present descending as a dove upon him. So we see this perfect representation of the Trinity here. And one thing that I don't want you to miss is in, chapter, in verse 21, Luke makes this reference, and while he was praying, as we continue to go through the book of Luke, Luke has a special uh, attention to when Jesus prays. He always he, he makes these special mentions of Jesus praying. So as we go through the book of Luke, make sure you note that. But you don't see this in Matthew's gospel of that Jesus was praying when this happened. But you see it in Luke's, and we'll see similar type things throughout the book of Luke. So then we get to the genealogy of Jesus, which I'm not going to read again. Um, we're going to call that one done. But what we do see here in this first verse of chapter, uh, of verse 23, it says, When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. And so we see this is about the same age that priest would enter the priesthood. If you look back in uh, Numbers chapter 4 and 1 Chronicles 23, you'll see that this is the age that uh, men would enter the priesthood. And another thing you'll notice, if you look at the genealogy that's in Matthew, that there are some differences here. They're, they align perfectly in some areas, but then there's other places where they're different. And for some people, this can be a real stumbling block. And it's like, well, what's, is one of them wrong? Is one of them right? And there's various explanations for the differences. And I, I don't think there's any way that we can know 100% why they are different. But I think the best explanation for why they are different, uh, and it makes perfect sense if you understand their audiences, is that they were writing to different audiences and the Jewish audience and the Gentile audience had different ways of recording genealogies. But I want you to see here that in verse uh, 23, he mentions, it says, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. You know, Luke clearly has already talked about the virgin birth, but people under, you know, thought that Jesus was the son of Joseph, and Joseph certainly raised him as a son. But even in this, they see the, a notation of the miraculous birth of Jesus. And this, the same is true in, a, in Matthew's gospel. 
Now, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience primarily, and so he provided the legal genealogy of Jesus through Joseph. And that's why you'll see sometimes, if you, if you compare the genealogy to what we see in the Old Testament, that sometimes Matthew skips a few generations because it was really important. It could be like who a grandfather was or a great-grandfather was rather than, you know, a perfectly linear father-to-father-to-father uh, relationship. And Matthew's uh, genealogy also includes some women that are not mentioned in Luke's gospel. And in Luke, who was writing to a much broader audience, more of writing to the Gentile world or to uh, the world, really, records the actual genealogy through Mary. So we see that both Mary and Joseph were descendants of David, which was a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus would be of the line of David. But that's why there's some diversion in their uh, genealogies. So you have Matthew's gospel, which records primarily through the line of Joseph, and Luke's, who records through the line of Mary. And we know that Luke had a special relationship with Mary. That's why we see so much of the account of what Mary was thinking during the time of Jesus' birth and leading up to it. But Luke's gospel also, or genealogy also goes all the way back to Adam, the first man, where Matthew's only goes back to Abraham. And then the reason for that is that Luke is wanting to go all the way back to the first man, because we're all descendants of Adam. So he's wanting to take it back and say, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, we're all sons of Adam. And so he takes it back to where it identifies with everyone. And you think, all right, well, that, okay, that, I can handle that. Well, why in the world is the genealogy in the middle of these two events? Because Matthew puts his at the, first, at the beginning of his gospel and Luke's is a few chapters in. Well, he wants to acknowledge the connection between Adam and Jesus, and that Jesus is, uh, is for all people. We see at the end of the genealogy here in chapter 3 that Adam is the son of God, which refers to his special creation, that it was the initiative of God to create Adam. And he's a different type of son of God than what we have in Jesus. But we see that there's that connection there. Because Christ is both the Son of Man, which we see in His genealogy. that He has flesh and blood like all of us. But we also see that He is the Son of God as acknowledged by God the Father at His baptism. It says, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. So we see here both the deity and the humanity of Jesus, that He is the Son of Man, but He is also the Son of God. And then in 1 Corinthians 15 and also in in Romans chapter 5, we see that Jesus is referred to as the last Adam or the second Adam and that how death entered the world through Adam, life enters the world through Jesus. So all the things that were set wrong by Adam's sin can now be set right through Jesus' death. And that's powerful. So he's, he's putting the framework here for us to see this. And he also makes this uh, point to the fulfillment of another messianic prophecy uh, that we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God is cursing the serpent who's tempted uh, Adam and Eve. And in this, God says to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So by going all the way back to Adam, 
in this genealogy, Luke is taking all the way back to include all mankind and to see that Jesus can be representative for all of us. Now let's continue on into chapter 4 where we see the temptation of Jesus. So in chapter 4, starting in verse 1, we see Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, the word really means to bow down, it shall, be all, it, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to them, It is said, You should not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So we see this immediately occurring after Jesus' baptism. And what we also can assume from this is that the information of this experience could only have come from Jesus himself. Now, we don't have any writings of Jesus, but we know Jesus shared these things with others. And so Luke has this information which comes from, at its source, comes only from Jesus. And and that brings into question, some people want to ask the question of when did Jesus know that he was the Messiah? Because we see him with these different glimpses as he's growing up, and then we get to this point where he's entering his messianic uh, ministry. At least by this point, Jesus recognizes who he is. Because someone's like, well, maybe Jesus kind of got drafted in this and really didn't know what was going on. He understands who he is, that he is the Son of God, that he has a special mission. And we see that in the way, in the information that he shares that eventually uh, we see here in Luke's gospel. And then we see at the beginning of chapter 4 that says that he was full of the Holy Spirit and that he was led around by the Spirit. This means that he was continually under the influence and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And as we saw at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And this presence of the Trinity, when we see that they are distinct, that but there's unity there. So Jesus is 100% under the control of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing, and not that he had committed any sin before, but there's nothing at this point that deviates from the mission that God has for him. We also see here in the temptation the reality of Satan's existence and presence in this world. Um, I, I think I mentioned this a while back when I was at a similar passage. We can't for a moment think that Satan and evil and hell are merely metaphors for 
the bad things that happen in our world. They are real. They are active. Uh, Satan is real. And we have to understand that, that there is a person acting against us who does not have our best interest in mind, actually has our destruction in mind. And if we think, well, this is just kind of the way the world is, then that kind of minimizes the effect that he can have on our lives. So we have to realize that Satan is real and that he has real schemes and really wants to hurt, especially people who believe him, who believe in Jesus. It's not a metaphor. And Satan had already successfully tempted Adam and Eve. You know, he got them to do what he wanted them to do, which introduced sin into the world and this rebellion. And so now his target is set on Jesus. At this pivotal point in the life and ministry of Jesus, like if I can get him to fail at this point, I've won. I've done it. Now, if we compare this with what we see in Matthew, we see that the order of these temptations is a little bit different. But these are actual temptations, but they're also representative of the types of temptations that, that came upon Jesus during this time. And we can broadly define those because they're the same types of temptations that affect us as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And when it comes to the lust of the flesh, we see he brings him to hunger. <clears throat> because he'd gone 40 days without eating And so he brings him to this. Well, obviously he would be hungry at this point. It says that he was hungry. And so we see this type of fasting, which would be normal at the beginning of a big ministry or some other type of thing that was coming up. Obviously 40 days is not typical um, because it can be done. And I've known people who have fasted that long. Um, It's not, for health reasons, it's not necessarily uh, recommended. If you're going to do it, please be sure that God has told you that this is what he wants of you um, because it is extremely difficult. Fasting for shorter periods of time is uh, much more common uh, that we see people do. But Moses, it also says that he, was, uh, he went without eating for 40 days. So it's not, this was not the first time that we've seen this in Scripture. Well, what fasting does is it increases our reliance on God where we keep ourselves from taking in the things that we're used to doing, that keep us going. And we have to rely on God even more. It's not a weight loss plan. Please don't completely fast for weight loss because that's it's not the best way. It has to be to increase our reliance on God. It has to be for that spiritual purpose uh, to get that, uh, to have that effect. And 40 days without food for anyone will leave you physically weak whether you're hungry or not. Past few years, my dad, because of some medical conditions, hasn't had much of an appetite. He hasn't wanted to eat. He'll have his favorite thing and take a few bites of it, and it's like, this doesn't taste good. I don't want it. So he's not really hungry, but he's just gotten weaker and weaker. And so even for a man healthy in his 30s to go 40 days without food would have a tremendous effect on his body because Jesus was a man. He had a body which would lower his defenses spiritually, but bring him even more reliance on his father. And Satan tempts him in a way, going back to this baptism where the father had just said, you are my beloved son. He says, well, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. It's like, well, saying you're son of God, 
do this thing. It was completely within Jesus' power to turn stone into bread. Completely within his power. And, and what's great about this temptation is that the bread loaves at the time visibly resembled some round, like smooth stones. I was hoping to go to a bakery and get one or I could show it to you, but it didn't quite happen. But there, there were similarity visually. So if he was looking at a stone, it was probably not too hard to visualize it as bread. Kind of, yeah, it kind of looks like a nice tasty loaf of bread right there. Um, but he doesn't do that. It was within his power to do, but he responds with Scripture. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, which comes from Deuteronomy. And then he brings him to this second temptation, where he shows him the kingdoms of the world. Going after his ambition. Going after what we seek a lot of times, power and influence. This is common, I think, to all of us. And he says it shows it to him in a moment of time. So this would be a a mental picture or some type of psychological vision to where he sees, because obviously there's nowhere in our world that you can stand and see the entire world and see all the kingdoms. But he's showing him all the inhabited world in his mind's eye. And we see that the inhabited world is under Satan's control, but only temporarily and only as allowed by God. Jesus even calls Satan the ruler of this world a few different times in John. So he understands that Satan has power over the inhabited world, but is only temporary. And Satan's gamble in this temptation was all in. He was offering everything to Jesus that he had to offer. But what he was offering was a temporary or temporal kingdom, not a spiritual one. What he was offering was to get everything all at once rather than through God's plan. Because the day is going to come where Jesus does rule over the earth. But God has a plan for that, and it's not like this. And if Jesus had given in to this temptation, he would have submitted to the authority of Satan instead of his father, which would have been unthinkable for him. There's no way that he would do that. So he responds with Scripture again from Deuteronomy. It is written... You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. There was no room for Jesus to deviate from that. So then He brings him to this third temptation. He takes him to Jerusalem, to this high point at the temple. And here Satan ups his game a little bit. Where he Satan quotes Scripture here. He quotes from Psalm 91. He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against anything. You're like, oh, okay. He's quoting scripture here. Maybe I can buy into this. But what Satan does is he misapplies the scripture and he intentionally misinterprets it. He misrepresents what's in scripture. What Satan is asking Jesus to do is to have a presumptive reliance on God, meaning I can do whatever I want. God's got my back. We can't live our lives like that. We can't say, I'm just going to go on sinning because I'm going to be forgiven. Or I can be reckless with my decisions and, you know, God will work it out. That's not what we're called to at all. There is tremendous grace and forgiveness available to us, but it doesn't mean that we can abuse that. Paul even says, should we sin more that grace may abound? He said, no, don't. That's not what... The Christian life is about. 
It would be foolish to do something like that. There's a difference between testing God and trusting God. We can live our lives trusting God, but not intentionally setting out to test Him and to say, well, if you're real, do this. If you're real, do that. If you really love me, then you'll do this for me. That's not the way we're supposed to live uh, in relationship with God. And we also see that all of Satan's promises are deceitful. Whatever the temptation might be, whatever Satan may be promising us is deceitful. There are lies at the heart of it. And again, Jesus replies with Scripture. He says, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, from Deuteronomy. And in verse 13, it says, When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. This opportune time would come a few years later, leading up to the cross. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees. And he, calls, he tells them that Satan is your father because you're doing his work by trying to kill him. To the religious leaders at the time, they said, well, Abraham is our father. He said, no, the devil's your father because you're doing what he wants you to do. And in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is telling his disciples about his, the, the things that are going to happen, him going to the cross, that he's going to die and be raised again. And Peter, thinking he's being a good friend, said, hey, Jesus, come over here. Let, let's talk about this. You're wrong. You're, this is not going to happen. You know. And Jesus realized that all the other disciples are looking at him. And he tells Peter, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Calls P- Peter Satan, saying that his words are from Satan because they are for man's benefit, not for God's. So we see even through the people who were closest to Jesus, temptation comes in. Because what's the temptation? The temptation for Jesus at this point is what he prays in Gethsemane. In Luke chapter 22, he says, Father, if there's any way that you can take this cup from me. Talking about the death that he was going to have to suffer. But he says, not my will, but yours. That's how we respond to temptation. We can acknowledge that, hey, I'm being tempted here, but it's not about what I want. It's what God wants for me. So even in that, we can see temptation itself is not sin. Being tempted to do things or to think things or to not do things is not sin. But when we give in to them, that's where sin occurs. Because Jesus was tempted to a degree that none of us were experienced, even though it's in the same types of areas where we face temptation. Jesus was tempted, but he never gave in to it. I put on Facebook, uh, I think it was Friday, this little video from this experiment called the Stanford Marshmallow Test. Back in the 70s and 80s, there was this uh, test that a psychologist did about how well we handle... uh, it's kind of the instant gratification versus delayed gratification. And the videos are cute, and those of you who have kids will so see your kids doing this. So the experiment goes like this. You take a child, and they were usually between three and six years old, and you put a big marshmallow in front of them. And you say, now you can eat this marshmallow now, but if you wait until I come back, 
and don't eat it. I'll give you two. And so, and they have hidden cameras set up to see what the kids do. And so they, they sit there. Some of them start to pet the marshmallow. Some of them, like, pick up the marshmallow and, like, smell the marshmallow. And then there's other two who are like, you know, there's just like, they just give right in. There's no waiting. So they were testing this. Why, you know, why are some kids able to hold off and wait for the better thing at the end? And why do some of them just give in? And it was even funny. There was like a brother and sister, and the sister was younger. And the, the older brother was like, I'm waiting. And she's just just eating that marshmallow away. He said, she's not going to give you one because you didn't wait. You know, and it, so I was like, I so see that in the kids of our church, you know, and uh, I could just see that happening. So we have this. So then you say, okay, well, that, you can learn some stuff from that. But then they followed these kids for the next 10, 20 years. And what we see what they found here is that children who were able to wait for the preferred reward had better life outcomes, better SAT scores, better educational attainment. They had better body mass index and all these other life measures. Their life was better because they showed at an early age that they could delay gratification. Hopefully you see where this is going. Temptation can be that. We can be tempted with something that's good instead of waiting for what's better and what's best. It could be with sex and marriage. It could be whether we spend our money and go into debt or whether we save. It can be whether we go out and party or do we study for the test. Our our temptations are usually for the temporary, for the quick and the easy, rather than what God has for us through faith and through obedience and through patience. And just like those kids, we'll take sin, we'll smell it, and we'll pet it and all that. It's like, well, I'm not going to give in, but eventually... The marshmallow is just too much, and we go for it. When we're taking big steps to follow God, as we see at this point in the life of Jesus, he's beginning this public ministry. Temptation and adversity will often come at that moment. That's when it will come after us. Because if we're flying under the radar, then Satan really doesn't care about us too much. If you're not facing some adversity, maybe you're not taking the steps of faith God has called you to because that's when it gets hard. But we also, when we look back at this, we also see a warning about misapplying Scripture. Satan quotes from Scripture in an attempt to tempt Jesus, but he misapplies it. And he wants him to have this careless regard, whether it's for sin or it's for his own life. We have to read Scripture. We have to know Scripture. And it's more than just memorizing it and being able to quote it. We have to know it. We have to know what it actually says. Because we can rattle off the words and have no clue of the truth that's there. And that comes from study and prayer and the teaching of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
But we have to know Scripture. We can't be shallow with that. We have to be able that when temptation comes, we can go to that reserve of Scripture that we know and go, no, what you're tempting me to do is in conflict with what I see in Scripture. Because if not, we can kind of go, well, that kind of looks like an okay thing. We have to know what Scripture says, especially in the areas where we are most often tempted. You know yourself. Hopefully you know where temptation comes at you. Know the Scriptures that address that. I think uh, Renato posted uh, something on Facebook that was where you face all these different issues. Here are some Bible verses that you can go to to encourage you on that. Know what those areas are in your life and know where you can go in Scripture for encouragement and defense in that. As we come to this time where we have our open time where we remember Jesus through the Lord's Supper, through the bread and through the cup, we see that the bread is His body that was broken for us and His blood that was spilled for us, and the, the cup, the blood that was spilled for us. The facts of the cross were horrible physically on him. But you also have to see all the temptation that he faced coming up to that. Every chance he had to take a detour, to take an off-ramp, to not go to the cross. But he didn't take that. He took, he took the road to the cross because he was obedient to his Father and because he loves us. That's the price that was paid for us. So as we come to this time... Remember that, and remember that in prayer. And as we talked about baptism, if you haven't come to the point to where you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, that you realize that, that's, that that gift is there and you haven't taken it yet, I pray that you would do that. And I pray that as soon as possible, you would let someone know and that that would be shown publicly through baptism. We're going to have baptism next week. You know, as the old saying goes, Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Um, but if that is where you are, be prepared for that. Let one of us know. Bring some extra clothes. We'll baptize you with everyone else. Um, because that's the first act of obedience. If Jesus was obedience, in Matthew he says, I'm doing this to complete all righteousness. If Jesus does that, it's a great first step for a new believer follow. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that throughout all the temptations you face, this intense time of temptation at the beginning of your ministry and and all the temptations that led up to the cross, we thank you that you conquered sin, that you conquered temptation, that you resisted the devil that even at his most crafty and his most powerful, he did not conquer you, that you did not worship him. Lord, help us to be obedient to the Father in the same way that you were obedient to the Father through all of that. Lord, help us to recognize the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives to teach us the right way to go and to understand your word and to guide our steps. Lord, I pray that none of these things that we've talked about today would be a stumbling block for anyone, but would be things that point them directly to you, your love for them, 
the sacrifice you paid for them, that you are the Son of God. You are the Son of Man, completely human, completely deity. But you gave yourself up for us. We thank you for that. We pray that the, the words of our mouths and the meditation of our heart would be pleasing to you, that the songs we sing, the prayers that we raise, the scriptures that we read would all bring glory to you. That as we remember you at this time through the bread and the cup, that you would receive honor and glory through that. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus.